Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. On today's episode, we're featuring a recording of our briefing with Israeli policy researcher, journalist, and former member of Knesset, Ksenia Svetlova. That briefing focused on the recent disaster in Lebanon and its regional implications, including for Israel. I hope very much that you will find this program informative, and if you are tuning into the podcast for the first time, then please check out our recent episodes and stay tuned for more content. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. Last week, as we all know, Lebanon suffered a devastating tragedy. A massive explosion at the Port of Beirut ripped through the city, killing more than 200, injuring thousands, and leaving hundreds of thousands of people homeless. Our thoughts are with the people of Lebanon during this extremely difficult period. But this incident did not occur in a vacuum, and its impacts will not be confined to Lebanon's borders. Already within neighboring Israel, we have seen a spectrum of responses, from a display of solidarity with the Lebanese flag's projection on Tel Aviv City Hall, to some far-right politicians like Moshe Feglin, grotesquely celebrating Lebanon's misfortune. The transfer of Israeli aid to Lebanon, a state with which Israel is still formally at war, has also proven to be contentious. To help us understand these issues, we are joined, we are joined by journalist and former member of Knesset, Ksenia Svetlova. Few in Israel understand the Arab world as well as Ksenia does. She has reported for the BBC, Israel Channel 9, the Jerusalem Post, and Commerçant. Throughout her journalistic career, she visited a number of countries in the Middle East, including Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Bahrain, Egypt, and the UAE. She later served as a member of Knesset for Tsipi Libni's Haknua party. Today, she's a research fellow, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Policy and Strategy at IDC Herzliya and a senior policy fellow at Mitvim. In addition to Hebrew and English, Kusenya is fluent in Arabic and Russian. Kusenya, thank you for joining us. Could you please provide us with an overview of what happened in Lebanon yesterday? What do we now know about the cause of the explosion and what remains unknown? Well, uh, thank you, Susie, and uh, hello to all of our uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, perhaps some are listening on the podcast, so shalom uh, and salam to all of you. Uh, the horrific tragedy that, that we observed uh, in Lebanon, indeed, it uh, rocked, it shaken, it was had shaken uh, the whole country, the whole country of Lebanon, and the aftershock was felt very much in Israel as well, not physically, but of course, the country that uh, is residing so close to our borders, well, we could not, you know, uh, be uh, uh, oblivious to what is happening in the neighboring country. I believe that the majority of Israelis, and I'm truly convinced of that, not only because it's my own position, uh, truly felt solidarity with the people of Lebanon. And also, uh, I can uh, tell from, you know, the people who live in my very mixed city of uh, Modi'in, uh, where you have uh, left-wingers, right-wingers, uh, religious Americans, religious French, uh, and others, uh, that the majority felt that putting Lebanese flag on uh, the Tel Aviv uh, municipality building was the right thing to do. Also calling for various, uh, you know, forms of help 
some of it will actually reach Lebanon this week. Uh, and there are various programs that exist within Israel in Arab community, but also within the various forms of uh, Jewish uh, humanitarian funds that are operating discreetly and very effectively to help our neighbors. Uh, so uh, uh, about, you know, the ugly callings of Moshe Feiglin and some other uh, people who really do not deserve to be called people at all. Uh, uh, so uh, I will, you know, uh, leave it, you know, at that because we all know what they felt and what they said. Uh, I do not think that it is representative of the majority of my countrymen. So uh, as we uh, uh, watch with horror, you know, the story of negligence, uh, with, uh, you know, the story that has many, many components of, you know, the corruption, uh, the uh, misrule, uh, the absence of responsibility of any uh, of the government officials that during this, you know, seven years that passed since the time when the Russian ship that belonged to a Russian businessman had that carried this uh, dangerous uh, chemical uh, uh, um, substance from the port of Batumi to Mozambique, which is actually, as I checked, you know, for I wanted to know for myself, how rare is it? It's not rare at all. I mean, uh, ammonia is being sold and uh, it's being shipped around the world in, high, in huge quantities. About 200,000 of tons of ammonia are sold around the globe uh, each year. And the amounts are keep growing all the time, you know, when the most of consumers of this uh, 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 substance that is used mostly for agriculture, uh, they uh, actually uh, exist, you know, that they, they live in uh, uh, South, uh, you know, Southeastern uh, Asia. They're the biggest consumers of ammonia. Uh, there are no laws that forbid to trade ammonia, to ship it around the world. And different countries have different sets of rules of how do you safeguard this substance to prevent it from exploding. So obviously Lebanon, uh, which is sinking like a beautiful Titanic uh, during the last, I would say, 20 years, you know. So uh, this is a, indeed, you know, a very tragic story of a you know, very beautiful country. I uh, had the privilege to visit it twice. Uh, and I saw it in its glory and in its misery because I've been there when the prime minister, ex-prime minister of Lebanon, Rafik al-Hariri, was murdered by the order of the Syrian government and by the hands of uh, Hezbollah terrorists. Uh, and uh, then uh, Lebanon also exploded physically, uh, but also politically, you know, and the revolution, the Arab, uh, the Arab Spring revolutions, they began in 2011. Well, in Lebanon, the Arab Spring had begun in 2005, much earlier than in every other country in the Middle East. And I saw with admiration these young people marching the streets of Beirut, demanding justice for their country, demanding uh, truth and demanding change for their country. They believed very much that they will be able to actually to do it. Uh, and, um, and they thought that they have won, you know, in, this, uh, in their revolution. Obviously, 15 years later, we can say that no, it was not a victory. It was just a tactical move on behalf of the Syrian government that withdrew. Uh, its forces after 30 years of presence in Lebanon, but Syria and Iran and Hezbollah are still choking Lebanon and they're holding it uh, on its throat, you know, and uh, not allowing it to breathe. Uh, it would be too simplistic, though, to say that only Hezbollah or only Iran or only Syria are in charge because, you know, uh, Hezbollah did not nominate uh, the Minister of Interior. Hezbollah did not nominate the Director of the Port Authority. Hezbollah did not nominate uh, all of the other 
uh, officials in this long, long line of people who were supposed to do something, but they didn't do a thing. Yes, Hezbollah has a, a quite a grip on everything that is happening on the Lebanese port. And we know why Hezbollah is using this port. They use it also to um, uh, trade uh, illicit uh, drugs, uh, tobacco, uh, other goods, uh, and they are doing it globally. It's not only Lebanon, of course. They are doing it in Africa. They are doing it in the Latin America. Uh, and until very recently, also in Europe, in the heart of Europe, in Germany, in Holland, and in other places. They also, uh, of course, uh, have to maintain their control over the port in order to smuggle weapon into the country uh, that is being shipped uh, from Iran and also from uh, other countries. But to claim that ammonia was uh, brought to Lebanon to be used to Hezbollah, it's uh, something that is, uh, I would say, it's unprofessional uh, judgment. Uh, because uh, we don't know from what you know Hezbollah weapon is comprised and what kind of chemicals are they are they using you know for their rockets and they have an arsenal of 150,000 rockets. So uh, saying all that, uh, I do believe you know that this uh, uh, horrific uh, blast that happened in Lebanon uh, now it's already a week uh, from now, almost a week from now. Uh, it was, uh, of course, you know, it was unexpected tragedy and nobody expects that half of the city will be just, you know, uh, wiped uh, from the map. Uh, but at the, time, it's at the same time, it was also inevitable uh, because we saw the Lebanese government divided, weak, unable to cope with any other challenge during the last, I would say, at least 15 years. Yes. So uh, it was the garbage crisis in 2014, 2015. It's the lack of potable water in, in Beirut. You know, it's not, you know, some you know, forgotten city in Africa. Uh, it's a very uh, lovely city, the city that we love to like, the Westerns, we like to love, you know, the city because like, wow, they're so much like us, you know, so, and we're also mindful of the disaster in Lebanon much more than in any perhaps other place in the Middle East, uh, because it's very easy to identify, you know, with Lebanon, with Lebanese culture, uh, with their love of life. When I uh, uh, visited myself Beirut, I felt well, I felt that if I will go on the Corniche of Beirut, a little bit to the south, I will just end to Tel Aviv, uh, yes, Tel Aviv port and then Yaffa port because it was very much alike. The vibe was, was similar. But uh, what was frightening for me in this uh, specific blast, and I'm ending already uh, my answer to your question, is that uh, we're looking at Lebanon and uh, it's easy to say, wow, you know, they're weak. Uh, their country is corrupted, uh, they are uh, divided, uh, they, they are unable to, you know, meet the difficulties of their uh, life in the modern world. But it also means that the same danger also lures to Israel. The same danger lures to Israel because we are also becoming weaker. We are weaker today than we were yesterday. We also, you know, have a problem with corruption, with nepotism and so on. And our country also self-suffers uh, from uh, uh, disunity and inability to unite, you know, around uh, a cause and to just, uh, you know, uh, put away uh, at least some of our difficulties, if not all of them. Uh, so a lesson of Lebanon is important for Israel to learn. Uh, you know, apart from the part of solidarity and so on, it's important for us to learn and to understand why, you know, with what happened there. Uh, and I do not mean only the blast, it's the economic crisis. It's the problem with, with electricity. It's this horrific uh, social divide. 
uh, between the very poor and the very rich, and it's you know it's it, it kept growing during the last 15 years. Uh, and of course, uh, the country inside the country. I think it's more the most dangerous thing that can happen to any country. Hezbollah is a country inside the country, so it means also the black economy. It, it means, of course, uh, the you know strong uh, militia that is more powerful than Lebanese own army. And with all due respect to the young people. Uh, some of them are not so young. I saw many different protesters of different ages. Uh, to, with all of the respect to them, and they are risking their lives, indeed. Uh, but I do not believe that they have enough power right now uh, or enough cohesion to also not only protest in the heart of Beirut, which is easy thing to do, but also to protest and go now and protest next to the headquarters of Hezbollah in Dakhiel Jernubia in the southern quarter, south, southern suburbs uh, of Beirut, where it's, it's dominated by uh, uh, Hezbollah and uh, by, uh, by its process. So this is not something that is going to experience, I think, not in a uh, meanwhile, uh, which means that these demonstrators, even if they celebrate the resignation of the government, they're actually parading into nowhere. There is no goal, there is no plan. Uh, and uh, again, you know, this is something that remotely, but you know, uh, makes me think of our situation here in Israel. And it makes me, actually, it makes me shake. It makes me feel worried. Mm. You alluded to this in, in your answer, but I just want to delve a little bit more, Ksenia. As you mentioned, Lebanon did not face this disaster on stable footing. The country is enduring an economic and political crisis, having witnessed the resignation of two prime ministers in the past 12 months and the entire government just yesterday. Lebanon has also taken in about one and a half million refugees from Syria, a significant undertaking by any count, and all the more so when one considers that the country's population is less than seven million. Could you please elaborate a little bit more on these crises and how they're impacting both the Lebanese government's response to this disaster and the public's attitude? Well, I just have to remind everybody that not only Lebanon is taking refugees these days from Syria, uh, also Jordan, which is by uh, any criteria more poor country, you know, is also hosting uh, roughly a million, at least, you know, this, these are the refugees that are registered. Uh, and uh, actually there are much more of, of them, you know, in Jordan. Uh, Jordan is doing though much better, although not also not without fault. And they also experience shortage of water and electricity, but still they are doing much better than Lebanon. So uh, of course there is a burden of hosting, you know, the refugees uh, who are, by the way, they are suffering a great deal now because of Corona, they are unemployed. Uh, most of them, they have lost their jobs, uh, you know, uh, to, you know, the Lebanese who are now competing with them for the same jobs that they didn't dream to take on like six months ago. Um, the skyrocket prices uh, of food, of basic staples, uh, it's actually driving some people who never thought that they will go back to Syria, which is ruined completely. Yes, so, so Syria is a failed state. Uh, its infrastructure is non-existent. And yet you have now, and we have this uh, data from the uh, Russian uh, Center for uh, Reconciliation. This is how it's called. Uh, so they register every, every Syrian that is going back from Lebanon. So there have been a few, few thousands of refugees that are coming back now. Uh, from one hell to another hell, basically. Yes, it's not that they will be any better, but at least they will be whole. Uh, so uh, Lebanon reached uh, this uh, critical point of uh, explosion, you know, uh, literally and verbally. Uh, they reached it when they have shortages of electricity because they 
crisis in electricity exists there for many years. As I can remember, at least from 2008, this is for the first time when my friends in Beirut reported to me that uh, they were out of electricity for like half a week in every week during the summer. Half a week they didn't have electricity. Uh, it was well, well all known. You can find tons of uh, information about it uh, on the web. And yet the Lebanese government, uh, which was, uh, again, you know, they were quarreling among each other. They were unable to uh, get together and have a government meeting. Uh, they were unable to adopt any plan, any plan at all, you know, to rescue the Lebanese economy because it was uh, before it was too late. Uh, and uh, because of the Hezbollah group, they also lost, you know, Saudi revenues from the Saudi tourism, from the Gulf tourism. Uh, and uh, economically, you know, this country was bankrupt already two years ago. Uh, the world didn't uh, talk about it because uh, people were not hungry and people did not like go on the streets with signs, okay, our country is bankrupt. But this is actually what happened still in 2018. Uh, so uh, again, this is the mismanagement. This is the absence of a decent uh, rule of decent leaders. Uh, and when uh, the resigning prime minister, Hassan Diab, uh, he said in his uh, uh, first speech, I think after the blast, he said that we have to have early elections like great, great, uh, great decision because in Israel it helps us a lot <laughs> to have uh, elections four times in two years. Uh, and uh, we have to have a new political elite. Where should it come from? What kind of new political elite is he talking about? Okay, so uh, uh, if it would be a truly revolutionary situation, uh, we of course would see now not only breaking into the traditional um, um, places of power, such as the parliament, such as the ministries of foreign affairs, so economy and so on. These ministers did not decide anything in Lebanon. So you have a few uh, uh, centers of power. This is the traditional Lebanese elite, such famous elites, for example, such as Hariri family, uh, the traditional Christian families, Jamal and the others. Uh, and of course, uh, you have the Hezbollah. Uh, and uh, for the one year of Lebanese uh, protests right now, we have them for one year exactly, I haven't seen even one time, I haven't seen protests that was directed at Hezbollah where, where, where they exist, you know, so it's one thing to say in the middle of Beirut, okay, I think that Hezbollah are corrupt and they should go, where they should go, they are Lebanese, <laughs> just as the other Lebanese, so this is, uh, you know, this is a, a problem with the country, I would put it this way. It's not a country with a problem. It's a problem with the, with the country uh, along to it. And this is actually, um, you know, it's a big problem, I think, uh, for Israel as well. Although for now, you know, we have now the um, IDF declared that there is less tension on the northern border. They do not expect for Hezbollah to retaliate in this situation of chaos. So one, one could say, well, you know, this is a good thing, but, you know, if you are looking for the long-term perspective, you always know, you always know that to be a neighbor of a failed country, it's a huge mess. It's a huge mess. You better have your neighbors, uh, you know, not thirsty and not hungry and not looking for extra, you know, source of income. You better have your neighbors satisfied. You know, this is what I was trying to say. Uh, so this perspective, it's very, you know, like one-sided, short, uh, you know, uh, uh, termed uh, and basically wrong. We have a number. I have some questions about Hezbollah and some of our uh, listeners also do. So I'm going to try to ask a few questions at once and then you can take it wherever you like. First, um, despite what might have been an opportunity to exploit this tension, Hezbollah was quick to deny Israel's involvement in last week's explosion. 
could the situation in Lebanon still slide toward Israel? I'll, I'll leave it there and then I'll ask some follow-ups, including some from our audience. Well, uh, you know, uh, I actually did not think that even after um, the Hezbollah operative was killed uh, in this blast in Syria, uh, that Hezbollah is going to retaliate in a very, uh, you know, serious uh, manner. Uh, because it's uh, in the current crisis, and there was a crisis also before the blast. Uh, for them, you know, because they are not only a terrorist organization, they are also a political party. They have responsibility now. You know, it's, uh, they're in the same situation like Hamas in Gaza. You cannot only talk about resistance and resistance. You also have to put uh, bread to the table of the people who you represent in the parliament. Okay, so this is more responsibility that they used to have, I would say, like 15 years ago. So it's much more difficult for them to say, well, we are dragging this country to another mess, to another war in Israel, and then what? You know, so like what will happen? Uh, they understand that another uh, violent round with Israel, whether it's a military operation, like we, you know, we like to call it here, not a war, but a military operation. This is for insurance purposes, by the way. Uh, so, uh, you know, whatever is the consequence, Lebanon cannot stand it. Lebanon cannot uh, survive this, okay? So this is one blow too much, one, you know, uh, effort too much to basically destroy what is left uh, from Lebanon. And again, you know, if you ask me, there is no Lebanon today, there is no Lebanon. Uh, it's a failed state, so we still have a name, there is a flag, but this is basically nothing more. There is no state institutions, there is no civil society, there is absolutely nothing, you know? This is, of course, a very worrisome uh, situation. There has been, as you know, speculation about Hezbollah's role in this explosion, particularly regarding the warehouse at the epicenter of the blast. There's even been speculation that Hezbollah was using some of this ammonium nitrate, nitrate from time to time, selling it, using it to sell to, you know, help boost its coffers or for other purposes. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you that uh, a ton of uh, ammonia costs about $70. So uh, even if they, they would sell everything, it would not fill their coffers and if it would not survive, you know, help them to survive uh, economically. Uh, it's not a very expensive stuff, you know, it's not a very significant uh, and, and rare, uh, you know, uh, substance. So you can buy it everywhere. Uh, again, it's not, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the uranium, enriched uranium or something like this. So there is no problem, you know, and... Uh, uh, in the beginning, people were making speculations, indeed, uh, especially in Israel, but not only in Israel, about, you know, how it was used, for whom it was uh, meant. And yes, there are question marks, of course. But uh, what I can tell you, you know, from a very short research that, uh, you know, I made during the last week, I also wrote something for the Moscow Carnegie Center uh, about this blast. Uh, so, uh, you know, I reached the conclusion that, first of all, ammonia is widely, you know, uh, uh, sold around the globe. Uh, there are many other countries which also have very loose uh, legislation regarding the, you know, keeping uh, of ammonia and uh, safeguarding it. For example, France has much more loose legislation uh, than Canada, you know, or the United States. Uh, so, uh, I mean, you know, giving the Lebanese mess, uh, I would not be surprised if the, you know, final investigation will show uh, that uh, it was uh, a negligence and uh, nothing more. Uh, there are also letters that were written by the head of the port authorities to the security services of Lebanon begging to take this substance out from the port. Okay, so nobody cared. 
uh, and uh, it was nobody's business, nobody took responsibility, and this is why it happened. Again, you know, so uh, if uh, if uh, we would know that, well, you know, this is some rare stuff, substance that was stashed by Hezbollah, what would it change? We do know that Hezbollah, you know, does this, you know, things, and uh, some Lebanese are actually pointing fingers in any case, you know, to uh, to Hezbollah because they say even if it's not yours. Uh, you had control over the port during all of these years. Why didn't you do anything? Okay, so the state, we know that we cannot expect much from them. Uh, they were not able to take garbage from our streets for like nine months in 2014, 2015. Uh, you could see the mountains of garbage from outer space, you know, in the, you know, shuttle. So it, it was horrific, you know. So uh, people were wearing their face masks five years before Corona because of the garbage crisis. So uh, we do not expect much from our government, but you, Hezbollah, you had access to the port. You, you know, your, your, your people are actually providing security for the port. Why didn't you do anything? So, you know, um, what it means, I think, that Hezbollah, that uh, Lebanese protest today against everybody, every political source, uh, 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 every political uh, force uh, in Lebanon, including Hezbollah. So they are not only uh, going and saying, okay, we do not want Nasrallah, we don't want Hezbollah. Uh, they are protesting against everybody. But who is staying at home? Who is staying quiet? It's the base of uh, supporters of, uh, of Hezbollah uh, in south of Lebanon, uh, in southern suburbs of, of Beirut. You know, I haven't seen any, any one of these guys uh, joining the demonstrators and saying, well, you know, it's enough is enough. And uh, we need at least to disarm Hezbollah according to Taif agreements of 1989, which stipulate clearly that every militia in Lebanon should be disarmed. Every militia was disarmed except of Hezbollah. Okay, so, and right now, unfortunately, there is nobody who has enough force to actually do it and uh, to basically enforce uh, the, uh, you know, Taif agreements, you know, because, uh, you know, nothing happened with that. Nothing happened also with the UN security uh, resolution 1701 after the Lebanese war. Nothing happened also after the killing of uh, Rafik al-Hariri in 2005, uh, despite the pressure, despite the demonstrations. So perhaps I'm a bit pessimistic because I live in the Middle East for too long. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, I do not see for now any, any anybody in Lebanon who has enough power, enough, you know, fists uh, and weapons uh, to take it on uh, Hezbollah. As you know, Israel's coordinating aid to Lebanon via the United Nations. Uh, Israeli officials in the past have, sorry, in this time Israeli officials have expressed interest in keeping Hebrew labels on supplies in order to indicate their origin. In the past, Israel has erased such labels for precisely this reason when sending humanitarian supplies to hostile states like Syria. Why the change now and how could this impact the Israel-Lebanon relationship? Um, again, you know, if you ask me, there is no Lebanon. And uh, if there would be only the Lebanese government, and doesn't matter who would be the prime minister, Hassan Diab or uh, Saad al-Hariri, uh, if there would be no Hezbollah, they would take gladly anything that will arrive from Israel, help, training, uh, you know, uh, money, you know, and, and whatever. Uh, so um, um, because you have whoever you have there, you know, because uh, uh, the decision makers are not the parliament and not the government, unfortunately. This is not the source uh, of the political and military power in Lebanon. Uh, so uh, this is why, you know, the Lebanon officially refused uh, to accept uh, Israeli aid. So they might be taking some. Uh, and yes, Israel is now uh, 
uh, insisting to have, you know, its labels. Uh, I do not know the reason why, you know, why, why this time. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, this is, again, you know, an attempt uh, to use the humanitarian aid as a political tool. Okay, so we are doing something good for the people who are actually, uh, you know, they are they enemies. They live in the enemy state. Uh, and yet we are, you know, putting some money. I don't know how many money. I know that, for example, in the Arab sector in Israel, there is a fundraising right now uh, of uh, everything from uh, money to baby, you know, baby powder, baby's milk and, uh, and these kind of things. Uh, and they, uh, you know, they uh, now gained a huge amount of uh, money and aid that will be transferred through one of the international NGOs to Lebanon. Uh, so... Uh, um, I can only say that, you know, it's good that our government, you know, suggested to send aid. Uh, I, I like it, you know, so I think that you should not, uh, you know, in these moments of disaster, think about, okay, it's an enemy state and so on. There are regular people there, people who were just, uh, you know, going through this uh, harbor uh, with this baby strollers and, uh, you know, taking a, a walk there, you know, like everybody doing the Tel Aviv port. So from this point of view, I think it's a great thing to do. It's also politically, I think it's right. Uh, so, uh, again, you know, uh, I wish there would be somebody also on Lebanese side that would be able to say, yes, you know, we have, you know, our disputes and uh, because we will meet uh, in the battlefield once more. But now, today, it's time to think about our citizens. Well, so labels or no labels, we are taking what we are taking. And I'm still hopeful that, that they will. Uh, I just have to remind you that, unfortunately, I sat in the Committee for Foreign Affairs and Defense for four years. So I can tell you that, uh, unfortunately, Israel is uh, reducing its amount of uh, humanitarian aid uh, that it is giving uh, to foreign countries. And now it has the lowest, lowest uh, data in all of the OECD countries. So we are very, very far away from the minimal of uh, what, uh, you know, kind of aid uh, the OECD countries uh, give. And actually much less than we used to give until the perhaps, uh, you know, mid 70s. Yes, during the 50s, 60s, when Israel was very poor, when Israel was in need of everything, we were much more, you know, uh, uh, our hearts were much more wide open, you know, to the suffering of others than right now, unfortunately. I want to remind our audience, if you want to ask a question, and we already have several, but if you do want to ask a question, please type it in the Q&A box and we'll try to get so, to as many of your questions as we can. Um, I just want to ask one more, Ksenia, before I turn to audience questions. You referenced the fact that Tel Aviv City Hall was lit up in the colors of the Lebanese flag and that you thought that was generally well received in Israel. Do you, can you expand a little bit on the domestic Israeli reaction? And also, do you have any idea how the people in Lebanon responded to this gesture? Well, yes, uh, it's a very good question. And thank you for that. I think it's very important actually to talk about this internal debate uh, that uh, also proves that our democracy is although battered, but is still very vibrant. Uh, and, uh, you know, this kind of the, the example is this kind of debate that is uh, ongoing also in these days when uh, the uh, city hall is not lit anymore with the Lebanese flag, but people are still uh, talking about it. Uh, so uh, I uh, can tell you that many people also from the right wing, uh, for example, from the you know Russian community, and I always go through the feed of, uh, you know, the, what the Russian speakers in Israel are saying. And I was uh, really amazed, you know, to, to see that uh, many of them who vote, uh, you know, Likud and even more uh, to the right, uh, they completely support this move. 
uh, and uh, they uh, actually felt solidarity with their regular people and they say, well, you know, if we can do something even very small, you know, so that the other part will know, the other side will know that there are not only enemies here in Israel. There are people who can identify with their suffering and with their pain. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, there were many others and I cannot deny that, you know, there were many, there were a lot of them uh, who said, well, you know, it's, uh, it's okay to offer humanitarian aid. Uh, if they take it, okay. If not, then, you know, it's their problem. Uh, but why should we put an uh, enemy flag on the, you know, uh, in the heart of our largest uh, uh, city? Okay, so, uh, you know, the our economical capital, you know, so why should we put it there? Uh, and they would never do something like this for us. So first of all, I believe that uh, when you do uh, this kind of gesture, you do not uh, expect uh, reciprocity, you know, you do not expect, okay, now you do the same, you know, exactly for me. When you know very well that there are a lot of people in Lebanon that actually they have good friends in Israel. We meet, you know, with uh, people from Lebanese universities in, uh, you know, closed uh, fora in Europe and the United States, and we discuss with them Hezbollah and security and future. And they would love to say, yes, we feel the same. Yes, we also support Israel in the in bad times. Uh, but they cannot say it, okay, because uh, uh, they uh, would pay with their lives, basically, yes, for supporting Israel. And just a few weeks ago, there was a journalist, Lebanese journalist, who gave an interview to Israeli Channel 11, Channel 11, and she was arrested just for giving an interview for the Israeli channel. So there are laws that explicitly for, you know, for, forbid uh, communication with the other side. And I think that uh, Israelis should know very well, you know, that because we had such laws. We had the bills that uh, forbade the Israelis to have relations to the PLO, for example. Yes, and people actually uh, stand to the court of law because they had some kind of meetings uh, with the PLO representatives in the 80s, for example, right? So uh, uh, I saw a sign in uh, Beirut, in one of the signs that I saw, that really, like, it, it shook me, you know, because I felt like, wow, I, I understand where they're coming completely from. Uh, girls, they, she had a sign. Uh, we are hostages of pro-Iranian hostile militia uh, and of our impotent government. Okay, save us, please. Uh, unfortunately, there is nobody that will come and save. But this is the sad truth of many decent people in Lebanon. They didn't choose Hezbollah. They didn't choose for Iran to interfere in their internal affairs. They didn't choose for Lebanon to become a playground for, you know, uh, uh, regional uh, uh, states and the international, uh, you know, uh, uh, states that uh, want to have some kind of say in uh, the Middle East. Uh, this is what is happening to them. This is uh, what is happening to their country. Many of them choose to leave, basically, yes. Uh, and, um, I, well, again, you know, uh, the debate in Israel uh, had its place. Uh, I think it was really honored. Uh, different point of views were, were heard. Uh, in the end of the day, Huldai, the mayor of Tel Aviv, decided to keep the flag. Uh, and so it was, and uh, I was happy, very, very happy to see many people, not only from my own uh, uh, political uh, uh, circle or niche, uh, that, that expressed solidarity with the step and they said, yes, we are proud to have a city like Tel Aviv in Israel and a mayor like Hulday. Okay, so it said a lot to me that when it was coming from, you know, various political directions, from religious people, from right wingers and so on. Senia, Rachel Wallace wants to know about private Israeli NGOs. Has aid from private organizations increased or decreased? I assume she means to directed to Lebanon. Yeah, I do not know. I cannot tell you specifically now about the situation in Lebanon. 
because uh, this is, you know, ongoing thing. Uh, I do know about many initiatives that are right now, you know, they're having fundraisers. I saw many in Facebook uh, and uh, there are, you know, in Hebrew, there are in the, in the uh, Arabic, you can donate to UNICEF, you can donate to many organizations uh, that uh, can, you know, pass your money and help people in need in Lebanon. Uh, so generally, I can tell you that uh, the, when governmental aid, humanitarian aid is going down, the amount of uh, good Israelis that are donating to, comp to NGOs such as Israel Aid and Flying Aid, and they're helping to people who are very, very far away uh, from our borders, or sometimes very close, like in Syria, like in Lebanon, and so on. Uh, this amount of aid has grown significantly during the last uh, few years. Israelis like to give, okay? So this is uh, for some people say, well, we cannot do nothing to help these people. At least we will buy them some, I don't know, bread or something like this, yes? So this is a, in the nature, you know, of, uh, of the Israelis. It's very easy to have a fundraiser here and to, uh, to Haiti or to Syria or to Lebanon. You will always have some people with big hearts that will uh, donate and so on. But in general, I have to say about the humanitarian aid and other financial aid to Lebanon, because it's a catch-22. Uh, Macron, when he visited Beirut now and he visited the place of blast, he mentioned specifically that, uh, you know, uh, it's very dangerous to channel the money that will be raised for Lebanon uh, to the hands of these corrupt politicians that had ruined this country during the last, uh, I don't know, 15, 20, uh, 30 years. Okay, we are talking about the same uh, men, talking about the same family names and, and so on. But so to whom he wants to give it? Okay, how should you uh, rebuild Beirut? How can you help the people if you are not giving it to the government? So you can distribute the food through, I don't know, uh, uh, USAID, you can uh, distribute it through UN agencies and so on. But how can you rebuild the infrastructure of the city? You know, so uh, I heard from a friend who lives in Beirut and whose house was damaged, that on his very wide street, there is not one house that is being, uh, you know, uh, untouched. So you need massive, massive funds for uh, the restoration of the city. And I can tell you that uh, after the civil war in Lebanon, uh, Rafik al-Hariri, then the prime minister of Lebanon and also a billionaire by himself, he was able to bring the Saudi investments and the Saudi money into Lebanon. They believed uh, that, uh, you know, Lebanon will uh, uh, rebuild itself and it will become, and also some, at some point will become an ally to United States and Saudi Arabia rather than to Iran. Okay, so this is not what happened. So uh, Rafik al-Hariri was able to gain almost $1.5 billion to rebuild Beirut after the war. Now you need at least something like this because we are talking about you know 20 years later, 25 years later. Uh, nobody will give this kind of money. They were only able to raise about $300 million in the uh, donors conference that they uh, had, uh, it was one day ago. $300 million, I'm sorry, this is nothing. Okay, so uh, it will not be enough to rebuild, I don't know, one uh, anger, anger uh, in Beirut port. Oh, you need much more money. Uh, also, uh, don't forget that about, you know, the previous crisis uh, that already had shaken Lebanon. Uh, uh, the Gulfis will not give the money. Uh, the United States, certainly not, you know, not, not right now. Uh, the Europeans are watching, uh, you know, Lebanon with a... Uh, 
you know, the sorrow, but uh, they, are, um, they do not understand, you know, how, you know, they should give the money again to the same elements that destroyed this country, uh, how it will be useful to, you know, the purpose of uh, resurrection of Lebanon. So something needs to happen there before the international community will again put the, you know, uh, box on the table and say, yes, this is for you. Uh, start to rebuild your country. The country has really, you know, will have to reinvent itself. Uh, and for now, I do not see there anybody who is capable of that. And of course, when you talk about international assistance, this is all taking place in the context of a global pandemic, which is sure. causing a global economic crisis. So it's even more challenging right now to envision less where money the massive infusion of funds yep. could even come from. Absolutely. Um, Jeffrey Neiman has a question. Uh, can there ever be effective reform given the sectarian nature of Lebanon being so strongly divided along Christian, Shia, and Sunni lines? Does it need constitutional reform or just a new government? Um, that's a great question. And uh, if I would have a, a answer, I would go now to apply for the Nobel Prize <laughs> because uh, you really um, you, you really need to be... A, a, you know, some kind of a genius to find out the right solution for Lebanon. Uh, I unfortunately do not think that changing of government will change the system, will change the situation. I think that what is wrong with Lebanon, and again, I'm being, you know, trying to be very modest here because, you know, I'm a uh, Russian and Israeli and uh, a Middle East expert, but I'm not Lebanese. And Lebanese, of course, should know better, you know, what, uh, how they should uh, rebuild their country. But what seems to me, uh, that the old system, uh, the conventional system of division of power between the Maronites and the Shia and the Sunni, uh, the clientelist system that grows, you know, this protection chains around uh, each and everybody of the, you know, the uh, Speaker of Parliament and the, the President and the Prime Minister, um, I think this should go. And I was a little bit hopeful when I uh, watched the demonstrators in Beirut last year uh, when they just started to come, you know, from the homes. And uh, it happened in July 2019. It's already over one year uh, that we observed the demonstrations, the huge demonstration in Beirut. Uh, and these young people, uh, I know for a fact that there were also Shia there. I know from France, from France, uh, they had, uh, you know, uh, young Shia guys. Uh, Sunnis, um, you know, Maronites, and I, I was asking myself, do we observe the, perhaps the birth of the Lebanese nation? Because there was no Lebanese nation uh, so far, you know. Uh, it was first, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a, a Shia, I'm a Sunni, I'm Druze, uh, before the, you know, the nation. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's very tempting to look at these young people and say, well, you know, this is, you know, they, they, are, they will be able to bring the change. I do not know if they will be able to bring the change, but if anybody can, I think that these guys, that they are protesting for over a year, uh, they are very, you know, inspiring. They have to be organized. They cannot allow themselves to continue rally without a leadership, because this is what happened uh, on Tahrir Square during the Arab Spring in Egypt. There was no leadership. It was all very spontaneous. It was all very good people with good intentions, and here we're back to square one in Egypt, for example, yes? So, uh, uh, okay, you know, so uh, what will happen with the Lebanese protests? Uh, if they will learn from the lessons of the Arab Spring in other countries, I think they will understand, you know, that they do not only need to unite, they need to unite around, you know, some new figures that will be able to say, well, you know, we need a new constitution, but, you know, we need also a new political system, a different perspective on how Lebanon works. 
Uh, and uh, if they will be able to do that, they will get the money, they will get the aid. Uh, but, you know, there are very, very difficult wars that they have to fight and win in these wars before it will happen. But the need for the money is now, and it would take time, a lot of time to affect some sort of political change, right? So in the, yeah, meantime, the humanitarian aid will come, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, there will be food and there will be shelter, but nothing the will rebuilding be Rebuilding aid is no. a much different proposition. Uh, Nimrod Novik uh, says, there are two schools regarding the effect on Hezbollah. Will it try to divert attention by triggering a crisis with Israel? Or given its exposure, will it have to be more careful? What is your take? Uh, hi, Nimrod. <laughs> Good to hear from you. Uh, and, um, well, um, what seems to me right now, you know, from uh, also from the very careful reaction of Hezbollah in the first day, of the day of the blast itself, when they were very quick uh, to uh, basically uh, uh, deny any rumors about uh, Israel's involvement, uh, they clearly didn't want to raise any tension on the northern border. Then it was the speech of Hezbollah, uh, for Nasrallah, I uh, uh, listened to the speech, uh, it was very long. <laughs> Usually his speeches are very long. And uh, he made a point of saying, I wanted to talk to you about something else, meaning about the situation in the northern border and, uh, you know, the killing of uh, the Hezbollah men uh, in uh, Damascus. Uh, but I choose not to do this. There are, you know, different things and they come in different times. I'm quoting his words. Uh, so it seems to me that at least uh, for the for a while, you know, uh, we cannot know what uh, he or his Iranian masters will decide uh, in a year or so. But at least for a while, Hezbollah is a political force. Again, uh, they are much more like Hamas in Gaza, not like Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Islamic, Islamic Jihad in Gaza is also creature of Iran, but they do not hold this responsibility for the population, and they drive their force from the population. Hezbollah cannot say, well, you know, uh, we are escalating right now in order to uh, for people to think about something else, but the word resistance, Mukalma, it doesn't speak anymore to the Lebanese. Also for the Lebanese, who are supporters of Hezbollah. Yes, they support Hezbollah. They like for this party to stay in power, but they do not want another war. Uh, categorically, you know, I can, you know, assure you that especially people from the South whose homes are still were not rebuilt from 2006. Okay, so Hezbollah promised to them, of course, uh, to, uh, you know, allocate money and they did give money to some, again, you know, uh, by the protection system. Uh, but there are many, many villages that are still laying in ruins. So uh, you ask these guys, do you want another war in Israel now to, you know, uh, protect uh, Syed, Syed, you know, meaning the Hassan Nasrallah? No, they will tell you categorically, no, no, no to another war. And I think Nasrallah understands it very well. Uh, I do not uh, believe that they will give up completely on, uh, you know, the some measured escalation with Israel, you know, here and there, but something that we can, you know, uh, adopt uh, and uh, respond in the, again, in the measured way, um, not uh, postponing as much as possible the first northern war. You know, this is how it's called in Israel. Uh, right now we are living the war between wars. Uh, this is again the military, uh, you know, uh, glossary that I don't like so much, but uh, it's very much in use in Israel. Uh, and um, everybody is talking about the big war that we will have with Hezbollah. It seems to be inevitable, uh, but for a while, nobody, not Hezbollah, not Israel, doesn't want it. Okay, so uh, if 
there will be no major escalation. We can continue like, you know, like handling like this for another six months and then for another year and then another year until the rockets will, uh, you know, uh, be no good anymore. <laughs> so uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, also also a policy uh, that you can see a reason of it, you know. So there, is, there, there, might, there might be a war, but not today. Just make it, you know, happen not today. I think it's also true for the Lebanese. I want to remind our audience that uh, Hezbollah has what has something like 160,000 rockets now that are aimed at Israel. And of course, if if those rockets were activated, um, it would overwhelm any defense system, including Iron Dome. So I hope it's more than six months. Cause yes. um, Brett Bourne asks, I think, a very interesting question. Do you think China will see an opportunity to invest in Lebanon and expand its footprint in the Middle East following this disaster? Wow, do we have another hour? <laughs> tell me we could arrange because, another hour. You know, although uh, now uh, in uh, my institute, I'm more exploring more uh, Russian involvement uh, in the Middle East, but uh, the Chinese uh, possibilities, yes, I would say uh, the possibility of Chinese uh, involvement in Syria and Lebanon, because they are looking at both countries. Uh, they are sending yeah, their people, uh, they are growing their presence, uh, both in Syria and both in Lebanon. So I would not say that it's coming, you know, completely out of the question. Uh, they, uh, there is a potential of also including the, these countries in the Belt and Road. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are, if we are talking about investments, then for China, it's small change. Whatever Beirut's need right now for, you know, rebuilding, it's a small change. Uh, after all, they are doing uh, pretty much, you know, the same for Cairo right now. Uh, they are not rebuilding Cairo, but they are establishing a new capital in Egypt, a whole new capital, a new administrative capital. You know, this is happening with the help of China. Uh, however, you know, uh, saying that, I have to tell you that not being an expert, again, on China, but from what I know, uh, China was very reluctant of getting in the middle of a political crisis. And this is, the, I think, the only reason why they didn't jump on the Syrian option so far. Uh, because there are sanctions, because there is a Caesar, a Caesar law, uh, because uh, um, the perspective of what is going to happen with Syria, it's unclear. Uh, so for now, Assad controls the, the, most of the territories, but maybe it will not be the case, uh, you know, in uh, uh, six months or one year or two years. Nobody knows. So they're, you know, trying the waters, they're testing the waters. Uh, they're making small investments here and there. They're keeping their options open, but they are not jumping yet into this water. I think pretty much the same will happen now with Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is living its worst uh, political crisis, I think, I would not even say that since Hariri, I would say that since the day of the civil war. Uh, and again, you know, everything is open. I pray that there will be not another war in Lebanon, but it's also something that might happen. So uh, for Chinese, uh, they are traditionally very, very cautious about these kind of things. Uh, so uh, again, they might put some money because basically they're the only one with free cash right now and, uh, uh, and also willingness to show that, well, you know, we can uh, you know, do some things if we want to, but not the serious investments that Lebanon actually needs. Uh, and uh, again, you know, uh, uh, Chinese want, they like to know that they can control things. And you remember why the deal with the uh, IMF failed in Lebanon in the beginning of the year? Because they did not allow to IMF basically to take control, uh, some control of the financial institutions in the country. Uh, so Hezbollah was against it. And uh, I do not believe that Hezbollah, even when Nasrallah was calling for China to get involved, that he will get the keys 
uh, from Lebanon and just handle it uh, over to Beijing. You know, this is, uh, I think, uh, not what, what not what he was fighting for uh, all of these years. So it means that there is a possibility, open question, perhaps not for now. Do you think that Nasrallah and Hezbollah have been weakened by this? Uh, or is it too soon know, to tell? I think that everybody in Lebanon was weakened uh, by uh, this chain of events, you know, the economic crisis, uh, electricity crisis, uh, Corona, and now the blast. I think everybody is weakened. Every political party is weakened now by what is happening. Uh, because, uh, you know, the people do not believe uh, uh, no more, you know, to any politician. Uh, however, I think in the long term, unfortunately, again, you know, I'm saying this unfortunately for Lebanese and also for Israelis because we are close neighbors. Uh, Hezbollah is the only organized power in Lebanon right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, to imagine that somebody will disarm it, somebody will uh, force it into, uh, you know, letting go of their assets, political assets in the country, today it's simply unimaginable, to tell you frankly, you know. So maybe they're weakened in their short term, uh, because uh, as we can see now, they will not retaliate for a time being in the north, uh, their uh, range of uh, reactions is quite limited, you know, because they do not want to ignite another war. Uh, they have to really be very careful with that uh, in order not to anger more Lebanese. Uh, uh, but um, I can tell you that, you know, again, you know, having as much military experience as they do, and, you know, their uh, combat men, were, uh, you know, they were hardened uh, by the Syrian experience. They just got back from the battlefield. Okay, so nobody in Lebanon has even remotely anything like that. Okay, so, uh, uh, you know, not the political parties, uh, but also not, uh, not also uh, the Lebanese army. You know, the Lebanese army, when I uh, was in Lebanon, I often heard when the Lebanese are making jokes about the army, they call it El Watan. Watan, it's called a nation. Okay, so they should be a symbol of the nation, but they really are not. Uh, so it was kind of ironic when they said, ah, okay, this is this is what, and this is Lebanese soldier. He is nobody, okay? Uh, so uh, again, you know, there, if there is no military power and there is no organized, uh, you know, uh, civil society, you know, with uh, some uh, perhaps help from outside, who will, you know, who will confront Hezbollah? Uh, for now, I do not see. Maybe things change. I hope that things uh, will change and we'll see some new formations. Again, not for a, not for a while. We have time for just a couple more questions. And we have one from Julian Letterman. The international community led by France is conditioning aid on an independent investigation. Do you think this will happen? If so, could it make the corruption and infestation of Hezbollah more transparent and force leaders to finally deal with them? Um, so uh, let me just remind you that uh, a few days ago on Friday last week, uh, we were supposed to hear the verdicts uh, on Rafik al-Hariri uh, affair, on Rafik al-Hariri murder. Uh, the, you know, the investigation uh, was international, it was transparent. Uh, we all know that Hezbollah men, by the Syrian uh, army order, killed Rafik al-Hariri. So now what? Okay, so we all know what Hezbollah is. That it's hiding weapons everywhere, perhaps also in the port of Beirut, probably in the airport of Beirut, uh, under the feet of uh, you know innocent citizens, also perhaps in hospitals and everywhere else. So if the, fr fr the if the French will know that, if they have another report saying that, what will change for them? I ask because what will they know that they do not know today? 
Okay, so and if you know there will be a report, they will say yes, Hezbollah knew about this ammonia. Everybody knew apparently. Uh, so also they knew and they did nothing, or uh, they had access to this ammonia and they planned to use it at some point, for example, after seven years. I don't know if it's even good for after seven years. Uh, what will they change? You know, uh, will they not give the humanitarian aid? Uh, will they, uh, you know, say, well, okay, uh, until you get rid of Hezbollah, we do not give you a euro. Okay, so Lebanon will become, you know, poorer. Uh, it will stay without aid, but Hezbollah, you know, will not be removed just because of, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, that Macron will be not happy. Uh, so it's very cynical, but unfortunately, again, if nobody is willing to put their boots on the ground and to, you know, handle the situation, uh, so then. Um, what they what they what, what they want to uh, to to know you know about this report they, they, they do not know today I think that intelligence uh, they have enough uh, idea of what Hezbollah is how dangerous it to Lebanon to the whole region its connections to Iran what it's doing abroad also in France by the way that until now and by the way let me remind you this is quite a hypocrisy because why the France uh, it's it's uh, the main European country that objects. Uh, uh, that the European Union will include all of Hezbollah on the list of the terrorist organization, like Germany did recently, like Bulgaria did uh, a few years ago after uh, attack on European soil, soil on the, against the Israeli tourists. So the French, uh, they do not want for Hezbollah to, uh, I don't know, operate in Beirut port, but they are okay with this organization operating on their soil otherwise. You know, so uh, if you explain me the logic of that, I will be very happy. Uh, but it seems to me that there is not much logic in, uh, in that. Uh, and again, you know, so it doesn't matter what will be written in a, any report because we know what Hezbollah is once, uh, once again. Uh, how Lebanon will get rid of Hezbollah? It's a question of a billion dollars, not a million dollars, because it's, again, it's, uh, you know, it was uh, grown by the Iranians, but it's also an authentic Lebanese force. It's an authentic Lebanese uh, political power. How do you deal with this? How do you get rid of Hamas? How do you get rid of Hezbollah? How do you get rid of Muslim Brotherhood? Okay, so there is no answer for, for this question yet. Uh, when we will have it, then, you know, perhaps we will uh, pass it to Macron. <laughs> well, Ksenia, the hour has passed way too quickly, and I think we will definitely need to have you back because there's a lot more that we can talk about, not just Lebanon. Um, so thank, thank you, you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, um, this evening for you. Once again, I want to thank all of our supporters who are on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this possible, and I'm sure you'll agree that it was a very worthwhile program. If you've not done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you once more to everyone for joining us today. Uh, I encourage you again to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. I encourage you to view a recording our, of our special virtual event, The Road Ahead. Also, just a note, uh, we will be taking a two-week hiatus from our regular webinar programming. So normally, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar, but our next one will probably be in late August, probably a, in a couple of weeks, August 25th. So please stay tuned. Of course, if there is some kind of breaking news that deserves a webinar, we will uh, schedule one. But in any event, looking forward to seeing all of you back the next time we meet by Zoom. And until then, be safe and be well. And Ksenia Hamona Montada. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.